lest we forget Gethsemane. With the, the kids a few minutes ago, we, we looked at what are, what are they afraid of, what are we afraid of, and we looked at some, yeah, some of the things that we are afraid of, but most of them were funny things, aren't they? Things that you grow out of, things that are not really any cause for concern for us. But if we could take that question a bit further and ask, what are we really most afraid of? What, what for you, if you knew was imminent, what would cause you most anguish? Would it be if you knew the death of a child was imminent? If, if you knew the death of a husband or wife or mum or dad was imminent? I dread all of those things. I really do dread them. They make me feel a bit panicky. And it's uncomfortable to think about, but imagine, or even, you might not have to imagine, you might be able to remember the darkest place you've ever been in your mind. You know, the, the lowest you've ever felt. Maybe you felt on the verge of, of think, I'm having a breakdown here. Maybe even beyond that. That, that feeling, I cannot cope with any more stress. I'll, I'll burst. Whatever it is, Jesus has been there. When Hebrews tells us that we've got a high priest who can sympathize with us, it's not an overstatement. Jesus really can sympathize with us because whatever emotions we've gone through, Jesus has gone through them even further. Whatever emotion and stress and, and overwhelming feelings you've felt, Jesus has felt them even more. This passage is mega humbling to preach. I want us to, I want us to feel this passage this morning. Because in these few verses, I think we see Jesus as never before and never again. I really do think this passage that we're looking at this morning, this is the most st stressed, the most overwhelmed that any human being has ever felt in the history of the world, and we're looking at it this morning. The most broken that any human being has ever felt in the history of the world, we'll see it this morning, lest we forget Gethsemane. Jesus has just shared the Passover with his disciples, and then the, the disciples have argued like little kids about who's the greatest, and now on the night before he's about to die, Jesus goes with his disciples. We know from elsewhere in particular it's Peter, James and John. And he goes to pray. And at the beginning and the end of the passage, he calls his disciples to pray. But they can't even stay awake. You know, Peter who says, I'm willing to go here to prison and death, can't even keep his eyes open. James and John who've been arguing about who's the greatest, can't even keep their eyes open. And it reminds us this, whatever Jesus is going to do, he's going to have to do it on his own. Because with the best will in the world, his disciples can't even stay awake. And I want us to see four things that, that flow from this passage. I'm going to spend virtually all my time looking at the first, and the other three flow from it. So here's the first, and by far the longest thing that I want us to see this morning. Jesus really was human. Jesus really was human. Everything that Jesus goes through in the Garden of Gethsemane, he must go through as a man. 
It had to be that way. It wasn't just that Jesus died as a man. Jesus had to live his whole life as a man. Jesus's, we call it his active obedience. Jesus' active obedience was crucial. It didn't, Jesus couldn't just parachute in and then parachute out when he's been to the cross. If I was to say that one thing struck me from the, these last three years working through Luke's gospel, it, it's been to see the humanity of Jesus. That's the thing that, 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 that struck me most, the humanity of Jesus. We know, don't we? We know that Jesus is fully God and fully human. Jesus isn't 50% God and 50% human. Jesus isn't sometimes God and sometimes he's working as man. Jesus is always God and he's always man. But there's something crucial for us to understand that, that Jesus didn't cheat. We hear the phrase sometimes that Jesus emptied himself and it can sound dodgy. Jesus didn't get rid of his godness, but he did empty himself of it. Part of the incarnation of God becoming flesh is that Christ, the second person of the Trinity, fully equal with the Father, he submits the whole use of his deity to his Father's discretion. That's what's happening when Jesus becomes a person. One writer puts it like this, God the Son placed the exercise of all his powerfulness and his all presence and his all knowingness under the direction of his father. He did not give up those attributes, but he submitted their exercise in his life to his father's discretion. Though he was sinless, he had a real body, mind and emotions complete with inherent weaknesses. Do you understand what it's saying? Jesus didn't lose his, any of his abilities, but he, he, he gave over the discretion of, of the use of all those godly attributes to his father for his father to let Jesus use them at his discretion i.e. Jesus went through his normal life without cheating and using his godness because he had to live as a man and when Jesus performed miracles what was happening it was his father's discretion allowing him to and this is essential to think like it's the ultimate head wobbler for me to think that Jesus had all these attributes, but he gave them over to his Father and he lived as a man. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, lives as a human being with all the restrictions and weaknesses that humanity brings, but without sinning and cheating ever. Without ever drawing on his godness for his own gain. For Jesus to win salvation for us, he had to do it as a real person. He couldn't cheat. If Jesus at any point in his life, for, for living out his life of obedience, would have used his, his deity, it, it wouldn't have counted. He had to do it as a man. We read, don't we, we read in Luke, and it, it astounds me, Jesus had to learn obedience. That doesn't mean that Jesus was ever rebellious, but he had to grow in obedience. He talks about it, Jesus increased in knowledge. I, I, how can that... Jesus is God... Well, he'd it, it given over the attributes. It, 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 it learned as a real person. It means Jesus would have had to learn to speak. The one who spoke the world into being had to learn to speak. He had to learn, he'd have had to learn his things at his timetables if he did them. Jesus would have done things that weren't sinful, but that showed the naivety of a child his age. Like wandering off from his mum and dad when he were 12. Jesus had to learn... The scriptures. How could Jesus quote all those scriptures? Because he'd learned them. 
The, the, the scriptures, Jesus didn't just instantly, he could have done this, but Jesus didn't just instantly, it's like out the matrix, a cable plugged in your head and you download loads of programs. Jesus didn't just download all, everything he needed to know into his mind immediately. He could have done that, but he didn't do that. He learned things because he lived as a man and he wouldn't cheat. In Jesus' temptation with Satan in the wilderness, Jesus withstood Satan as a man. He didn't cheat. When Jesus was tired, he slept. When he was hungry, he ate. One person I've been reading went as far, he made me really uncomfortable, but I think I agree with him. Because he asked the question, could Jesus have gone to the cross as a 12-year-old boy? He asked the question, could Jesus have gone to the cross at the beginning of his ministry? And his conclusion, it's a careful no. Because Jesus still had things to undergo. Jesus still had obedience to learn. Jesus still had things to, 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 to go through. And I find that astonishing and almost I think it, it sounds dodgy, but I think I agree with him. Jesus couldn't and didn't cheat. Jesus had to live his life completely as a man with the physical limits of human life, physical limits of human experience. The Father had to get him ready for the cross. We mustn't compromise the truth that Jesus is fully God, but Jesus, we mustn't ever compromise the fact that he was fully, and it is fully, man. And so he went through all his life, all the trials, all the, all the difficulties of life, he went through them, and, and through those situations, he grew. He grew in obedience, he grew in understanding, he grew in resilience. So that eventually, he's ready for the cross. But he makes the point, he, he don't think he'd have been ready for the cross at 12, at 18, at 25? We don't know, but I, I think it fits. And so what, what we need to see as we're thinking about Jesus in the garden is that everything that Jesus faces in the garden of Gethsemane, he faces as a man. We don't want to split up his manhood and his deity, but he faces these things as a man. He doesn't cheat, he doesn't draw on his godness. He faces these as a man. His father doesn't say, well, I'll... I'll let, you off some of your, I'll let you use some of your godly attributes to deal with this, son, because it's going to be tough. No, Jesus faces this as a man. Let's have a, a look at it. Why did Jesus need to pray? We read in verse 39 to 40, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, that's where Gethsemane was, as was his custom to pray. So this, this is not a one-off. Jesus was a man of prayer. Why was Jesus a man of prayer? Was it... Was it why was it Jesus' custom to pray regularly? Why did Jesus, throughout his, his life, go off for, for times of prayer regularly? Was it just so he could have, have a chat with his father? Well, well, yes, but I think it's more than that. Jesus prayed because Jesus needed to pray. Just like we need to pray as men and women for spiritual strength, Jesus needed to pray. That's where we get our strength from. Jesus needed to pray. Jesus didn't just pray as our example. Jesus prayed because he needed to pray, because he needed his Father's help. And Jesus' prayer life isn't just there as an example to us. It's real. It was essential. Jesus couldn't have done the things that he did without praying. Why? Because he'd submitted the use of his divinity to his Father. He had to pray. And so Jesus goes about a stone's throw away from his, his disciples. He gets on his knees and he starts to pray, and his prayer's real. This is not a prayer just for an example of how to pray. It's a great example of how to pray, but that's not, that's not why it's prayed. As a human being, Jesus had exactly the same instinct as you and me to preserve life. 
Jesus had exactly the same instinct as you and me that, that didn't want to experience pain and distress and upset. What a masochist. Jesus had the same instinct as you and me have that we don't want to suffer. And so he prays this beautiful prayer. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I don't know if we realize how big a prayer that was. There's a, there's a series you could do on that prayer. As a human, Jesus had a human will. And in his human will, Jesus didn't want to suffer. This is a genuine request, I think. If there's, Jesus is saying, if there's any other way to avoid this, let it be. But if not, I'll go through with it. Because I want to do what's right by you, Father. If there's any other way that we can do this without me having to go through what I'm going to have to go through, say it now, Lord, but if not, I'll do it. And Jesus prayed that as a man. Let's not belittle that prayer. Let's, say, let's not say Jesus prayed it. Oh, he knew, he knew what was going on. He did, but he prays this as a man. Jesus is asking the question, is there any other way for God's anger and God's wrath and God's judgment at sin to be satisfied apart from me having to go through the agony of the cross? The cup was the Old Testament image. It's like saying, Jesus is saying, take this destiny away from me. Take this portion away from me. And I think as well what we see here is that Jesus' highest priority was to do his Father's will no matter what the cost. And let me pause and ask, because I think this is an example to us. Could we pray that? Could we pray, Lord... Whatever your will is for my life, don't let me stand in the way. Lord, I really, really don't want to do this. But I'll do it for you, Lord. We can pray that prayer because the same Holy Spirit that, that helped Jesus helps us. So we can pray like Jesus, Lord, not your will be done, but not my will be done, but yours. And we see again, this is not just for show, because an angel appears to Jesus to strengthen him. I don't know why an angel appears. Why not the Holy Spirit? Why, why, do, we, why do we see it? Maybe it's a, a visual representation to us that Jesus needed help. But the point is, Jesus needed help. Jesus needed strength. And it comes from God. And then we see the verse for me that's so sobering. This is the verse that hits home, verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Being in agony. What's going on? Sweating like drops of blood. What's going on? I love this hymn, and we're going to continue to sing this hymn. Not today, but we will continue to sing this hymn. Because I don't think it's a heretical hymn. I love the hymn. But it says, for me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. We're okay with that, aren't we? You know, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus of Nazarene, wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean, how wonderful, how marvellous is my Saviour's love for me. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. Absolutely true. For me it was in the garden, he prayed not my will but thine. Because Jesus loves us, he prayed, not my will but yours, Lord. I'm okay with that. But what about this? He had no tears for his own grief. 
but sweat drops of blood for mine. He had no tears for his own grief, but sweat drops of blood for mine. I think they've got it wrong. I think they've missed the point. Jesus' tears in the garden aren't for you and me, they're for him. Yeri's there praying, Yeri's going to the cross for me and you, but his tears in the garden aren't for me and you, his tears in the garden are for him. His tears over Jerusalem were for the likes of me and you. His tears in the garden are for himself. They're not tears of sadness, they're not tears of sorrow, they're tears of terror. Yes, Jesus is doing this for you and me, but his tears are for what he's going to have to endure as a man. His tears are are, are for what he's going to go through himself. There's a debate about the tears. People say, well, some people say, well, the tears, they were tears that were like blood. Other people say, well, no, it was actually sweating blood. There's a medical phenomenon, it's called diapodesis. It's when, because of stress and, and strain, the blood vessels in your forehead can pop. And you actually sweat blood. It, it, was, it was known to happen um, on occasion to, to young men in the war when they were about to go over the top of the trench. Occasionally, they'd, they'd be so terrified that the capillaries in the, in the forehead had burst. What could make Jesus whether it was that or sweating like blood, what could make Jesus so terrified? Here's the one who, who's in control of all things. What could make him so terrified? I don't think it was the thought of pain. We mustn't belittle the pain and the agony of the cross. I think we do belittle it sometimes. But lots of people have died in ways that Jesus died. And don't get me wrong, the pain would have been horrific, but the physical pain of Jesus' death wasn't the thing that's unique in all of history. I think Jesus is terrified of two things. The first thing is terrified of his father removing his love and his comfort and his help and his presence. Jesus had never known separation from his father, but he knows that tomorrow he's going to be utterly alone for the first time ever. But secondly, I think it's this, that Jesus knows He's not just going to experience his father's absence, but he's going to experience his father's anger. Jesus knew that he was going to experience all of God's wrath at the sin of every repentant person in history and that his father wasn't going to hold back. Jesus was about to bear the sin of the world. Do you you ever feel, of course you do, do you ever feel overwhelmed with with guilt? You know, even sins that you've been forgiven of, you feel disgusted about them. And yet we're hardened to sin, aren't we? I'm hardened to sin. Jesus had never sinned. Jesus' spirit, his conscience was so tender. He was so innocent. The tiniest sin that we don't even register as a sin would have made Jesus feel terrible. Because he was pure. And he's becoming aware, increasingly aware, the most vilest sins in history are going to be imputed to him tomorrow. Let me ask you the question. This is an uncomfortable question, and I was thinking, oh, I'm not even going to say it. Do you believe that a truly repentant rapist can be converted? Do we believe that? Truly repentant. Do we believe that a truly repentant, horrendous abuser can be converted? 
Do we believe that someone who views filthy images can be converted if they truly repent? Do we believe that liars and gossipers and people who are full of hate can be converted if they truly repent? We have to say that we do believe that, even though it makes me feel uncomfortable. And if we believe that, what happens to the sins of those people? They don't just go away. Somebody has to take responsibility. And if that's the case, then when what Jesus experienced in the garden was the knowledge that all of the filthiest sins in history are going to be laid on him. Jesus is going to experience the horror of the guilt of the filthiest sins in history as a man. And he's not going to have any help from his father. Now that doesn't mean that Jesus became those things. Let me be mega clear on that. Jesus did not become those things. But those things were imputed to him. Imputed means he was counted as those things. Those things were laid on him. Jesus took the blame for those things. He took the punishment for those things. He took the responsibility for those things. And as Jesus contemplates it, it almost kills him. It is no lie, this stress almost killed Jesus. Is Jesus the holiest, purest, kindest, gentlest, loveliest person ever to walk the earth? Never experienced what sin feels like. Never experienced what guilt feels like. Beautiful, spotless Jesus. And here he is terrified. He's starting to feel the weight of it all. He's starting to feel the, the, the malice of hell and all that Satan can throw at him as a man. Oh, make me understand it. Help me to take it in. What it meant for thee, the Holy One, to bear away my sin. Calvary was horrific. Let's not underplay Calvary. Calvary was horrific. I think this is the worst bit for Jesus, if I can say that. Because this is where the, the battle's won. The battle in his mind's won here. By Calvary, yeah, he's going through with it, but it, it sorted the resolves there. But this is where he comes to terms with it. It's often worse, isn't it? Contemplating something. And here's Jesus in so much mental anguish that elsewhere it's described as unto death. He had sorrow as unto death. That's not an exaggeration. Jesus, this nearly kills him. It takes him to the limit of what a human mind can actually take. I think in this passage, Jesus is on the verge of a mental and emotional breakdown. He's on the verge of a nervous breakdown. Jesus has gone through his whole life completely unruffled. Nothing phases Jesus. And here is absolutely ruffled. Jesus really was a human being. Jesus was a real man. And then after all this, Jesus rises from his prayer and his disciples are asleep. Ones who said they were great well, Jesus, the man's going to have to do this alone. We've sinned as men and women. And because we've sinned as men and women, sin has to be paid by men or women. Jesus knew that. Now, when I say sin can't be paid for by God, don't, I'm not trying to say Jesus isn't God, but you understand what I'm saying, don't you? That sin has to be paid by, by a human. Human sin has to be paid by a human. Jesus knew that, and he did it for us without cheating once. And we worship him, and we love him, and we adore him, 
And we say, I will do anything for you. What else does this passage teach us? Stuff that we've already looked at, so I'm just going to recap it. Teaches us that prayer is really important. What's your functional attitude to prayer? Yet yeah, we, we know prayer is important, but what's your functional attitude to prayer? What, what functional place does prayer take in our lives? Is it important to us? How on earth do we, as fallen, sinful people, expect to navigate trials and difficulties in life with, without prayer when Jesus couldn't? Prayer is really, really important. If it was for Jesus, how much more is it for us? Second thing is this. Sin really is horrific. Sin really is horrific. Father, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not your will be done, but mine. If there were any other way for sin to be dealt with, Jesus would have gone that way. If there were any other way for sin to be dealt with, the Father would have brought it up. Your sin and, and my sin is so horrific that it needs to be punished. And either we'll be punished for it in eternity under a similar weight to what Jesus felt in the garden, or Jesus will do it on the cross. But let's be clear this morning, there's nothing you or me can do to deal with our sin. It's got to either be dealt with us in punishment in hell or it's dealt with Jesus on the cross. Nothing we can do to pay for our sin. Nothing we can do to atone for our sin. Our sin deserves God's unfiltered, measured wrath for all eternity. But in the garden, against his earthly instincts, Jesus resolved to drink that cup for us. I'll suffer it for him. I'll take it for him. Do you really think that when... You hear this all the time. When we stand before Almighty God, do you really think that He'll let us off if He didn't let His Son off? Sin's horrific, and only Jesus can deal with it. Fourthly and finally, what this passage teaches us mega clear is this Jesus really does love us. Jesus really does love you. How can anyone ever say that God or Jesus isn't loving? How can anyone look at what's going on in the garden and think for a minute that, that God is indifferent either in his love for us or his attitude towards sin? That's the glory of Jesus in the garden, isn't it? The wonder of Jesus' love in the garden isn't that Jesus was fearlessly going to the cross. The, the wonder of Jesus' love in the garden, it's not that with no fear he's going to the cross, it's not that. The wonder of the glory of the Jesus in the garden is that having weighed it all up, he went to the cross absolutely terrified. Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. He didn't go to the cross fearless. He went to the cross terrified. When we've been in heaven for 100,000 years and we're wiser than all the angels and we've got perfect intellects and perfect minds and perfect understanding, we still won't grasp how much Jesus loves us. We still won't grasp what Jesus went through in the garden. One commentator says something like this. He says, there in the garden, the perfect, all-powerful father listened to his perfect son's agonizing pleading for another way. 
And since there was not, he willed the death of his son. What a blasphemy it is for us to think that sin doesn't matter. What an outrage for us to think that we can be good enough for God without Jesus. What a slur to think that God doesn't love us. For me it was in the garden. He prayed, not my will but thine. He sweat tears of blood for his own grief, but still went to the cross for sins that were mine. We're going to sing, Lest We Forget Gethsemane.